You guys, we have obtained audio from the Carter Page uh, Hipsy hearing. Wow, let's, you mean Carter Page talking to Trey Gowdy and uh, and Adam Schiff? Let's let's listen in. Okay, Mr. Page, how many conversations have you had with candidate and/or President Trump? I have never spoken with him at any time directly in my life. I spent many hours listening to him in great rallies. I've listened to him on TV. I understand kind of the concepts, but I no direct personal relationship in any way. Well, Dr. Page, let me tell you what the lawyers hear when they hear that answer. They focus on the word directly. Yes. I'm not aware how you can speak to someone other than directly. So why did you use the word directly? I'm just being careful. You know, I'm a pro se litigant to try to fix some of these problems in another case in Southern District of New York. And I'm learning sort of being perfectly clear. I did, you know, again, as part of the committee, there are certain people on that committee who have direct relationships, right? And so I'm being, you know, we're under oath. I don't lie ever, but I want to be, I want to be perfectly clear. I appreciate your desire for clarity, but I want the record to be clear too. Have you ever had any conversations with then-candidate or now President Trump directly or indirectly? The only thing I have shared ideas with, never, The only thing that could, you know, if someone's really being a nitpicker on the legal front is the indirect. You might say that people have talked with him, people that are members of our growing committee. We started off as very large, you know, small group during the primaries. It kept growing over time. Some of those people I spoke with may have spoken with him. Right. Well, that falls into the general field of conjecture or speculation. I'm just trying to figure out right now what you actually know. And if I understand your testimony correctly, you know that you have never spoken with candidate or President Trump. That is correct, sir. Have you ever emailed with either candidate or President Trump? No. I, no. Text message? Never. Any form of communication? No. Has he ever sent you a message? Never. The only message is when I was trying to get my story out there, you know, again, very indirectly, but he did a tweet in early summer, in late May, early June, where he was saying, you know, they should let, the Congress should let him testify, which I'm greatly appreciative of, but that's Did you the ever only... respond? Did you respond to that tweet? Not directly to him. Again, various people in the media, when that came out, there was a lot of questions I got from the media. Well, we're going to try and make the record as clear as we can. Have you ever spoken with Donald Trump? Never. Have you ever received a message from Donald Trump? No. Have you ever emailed with Donald Trump? No. Text message? No. Snapchat? No. Instagram? Never. Any form of communication with Donald Trump? Not directly, no. (sighs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Mr. Page Goes to Washington edition. I'm Shane Harris, performance reporter. Uh, We got some pretty good live tape there. That was actual, actual transcript from Carter Page's how many hours? Seven. Seven <laughs> hours, you know, interrogatory with the with the House Permanent Committee. On and the amazing thing is he was no more coherent at the beginning of those seven hours than he was at the end. And I think in Trey Gowdy, like, you know, it really, I mean, you could see him just struggling with the text. And like, you know, I'm really, I'm really grasping to understand I just, your relationship with the president of the United States. I just want to emphasize that this is the reason why it's called the House Permanent Committee <laughs> on Intelligence. <laughs> Because it's actually there forever. 
There are also some great exchanges with Adam Schiff over sort of the nature of the Fifth Amendment privilege that Page is trying right. to so clearly selectively apply and the sort Fifth of Amendment. Schiff trying yeah. to like get him on the record on this legal mm. theory that uh, might not hold up over the long term. Sounds like they had great fun. Yeah, it just, it really reminded me of Admiral Stockdale at the vice presidential debate. Like, who am I and what (laughs) What am am I I doing here? here? (laughs) Uh, Well, I am here with my good friends, uh, Tamara Kaufman, what is Ben, what is, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi. Shane. Shane. Uh, And we are going to talk about Trump campaign advisor Carter Page and his marathon. Not really testimony. Are we calling it testimony? It was behind closed doors. Interview. An interview. interview. Interview where you're not, I can't remember if he was under oath or not, but you can't lie. He right? was so, under he oath. He was Although under you oath. cannot lie even you if you're lie. not under oath. It's a very bad thing to lie in that setting. Don't lie, children. Don't do it. Don't do it, Carter Page. Don't go there. Uh, we're also going to talk about the Saudi government launching an alleged anti-corruption push, but is it really a power grab? And CIA Director Mike Pompeo, you remember him, is entertaining an alternate theory about the Russia hacks. Hmm. Mm. It's going to be interesting. Um, uh, let's go back to Carter Page. So, I mean, all kidding aside, uh, uh, I thought that, and for those who haven't been paying attention to the Russian affair for the past year, Carter Page was one of the five foreign policy advisors that Donald Trump identified as working for his campaign back in March of 2016. In an interview with the Washington Post editorial board, what stuck out to most to me, and one of only four who has not pled guilty to a crime. Oh, is that right? Right, well, and, and one of how many that we know went to Russia, and in this case, gave a public address criticizing yes. the, the extant administration's foreign policy. But no collusion. But no collusion. That he went to Russia was not a secret. However, we did learn uh, that Trump campaign advisors, and I guess fair to say Carter Page's bosses, before and after his trip to Russia, knew he was going to Russia, and he briefed them on the amazing information and the exchanges that he was having with people. So the upshot of this being that there was far more to, at least in Carter Page's mind, uh, his Russian adventures than he had previously disclosed, and that people in the Trump campaign knew more about them than he had previously disclosed. So I think one thing that's really interesting is if you look at the Manafort indictment, um, there is this sort of, or I guess it's in the Papadopoulos uh, plea deal, um, but it's Manafort who's uh, who's the unnamed individual. Um, there's this footnote whenever they talk about Papadopoulos suggesting that there be this meeting, these meetings with Russia. There's a footnote in that plea uh, that plea deal that said um, senior campaign official now known to be Manafort had said an email saying we need to, to send the message uh, you know we need to make it clear that Donald Trump is not doing these trips period new sentence it should be someone low level <laughs> so as not to send a message hmm, maybe someone so, whose name rides with Carter Hage right so there are two <laughs> interpretations of this sort of ambiguous email that Manafort sent to Gates one is he's saying we're not doing these trips and somebody low level should communicate the fact that you're not going to do these trips, uh, right? That that's right. like to the Russians, exactly. Yeah. Um, or it's that Donald Trump is not doing these trips, and someone low level is doing these trips. Enter Carter Page, and so it is sort of this. Like, there are these kind of question marks, and then fact patterns that potentially do fit sort of a theory by which no, they're sending low level people like really intentionally to have these sort of communications under the radar. But like we're missing this sort of like intent element piece of it somehow. Like we, you still need to like, like more information to understand who knew, why was this being done? Well, and also I think 
Carter Page's odd personality and and his very strange way of explaining his own understanding of what he was doing just adds to the confusion here because it would be great if you had some expressed intent from a campaign superior. Um, but what you have is his understanding of what he was doing on his own and what he was doing on behalf of the campaign. And he contradicts himself so thoroughly in the course of this interview, you know, saying, first, while I was going to Russia, you know, I do this all the time. This is the thing I do. I did it on my own. But then at the same time, no, 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 I told them what I was doing. And I told them all about my meetings. And I wanted to, of course, do these meetings because it was helpful to the campaign. And so it's like, okay, guys, which is it? This leads uh, to a great Trey Gowdy line. Mr. Page, I wrote that down. Volunteer, unpaid, informal, unofficial. I'm still trying to figure out what the hell your role was Mm -hmm. with the Trump campaign. I think Carter Page is trying to figure that out. And I think the Trump campaign is busily shifting gears on that. He he was the coffee boy. I mean, part of the problem here is that uh, Carter Page is unrepresented um, by counsel. And uh, let's face it, not uh, behaving in an entirely rational fashion from a uh, from the point of view of uh, a lawyer who would have a client in this. If, if you, you mean giving a cable news interview about your role in Russia without a lawyer present is not a good idea. Yeah, so, so that would generally be a good idea. <laughs> giving a seven-hour uncounseled interview uh, to. Uh, an investigating committee in a situation in which you're potentially uh, uh, liable for false any false statements that you might make, generally not a good idea. Uh, having to assert your own Fifth Amendment privilege uh, against a trained prosecutor like Adam Schiff, uh, who but was- then not even being able to explain in what manner or on what. You know, how you're invoking it or what its implications are? The Fifth Amendment in the testimonial context like this is a complicated animal and nobody should be representing themselves in that context, particularly not somebody who clearly knows nothing about the Fifth Amendment. And so I'm – I actually, you know, feel badly and I don't think it's a good thing for the process – that Carter Page was in this position, uh, uh, largely, I think, because he put himself in this position. It's not, it's not, you know, it's easy to be totally amused and say, do dramatic readings uh, based on what he did. But it's uh, not at the end of the day, a good thing. And if part of the uh, ambition of the, um, of the process and the investigators is to get somebody like that in a cooperative posture so that he can be maximally helpful to the investigation. This is not somebody who's ever going to be a credible witness against anybody or about anything ever. But you're not, are you saying that you think, because we've had a little bit of this conversation about whether or not like it's sort of, it's amusing or it's actually just profoundly sad and it's sort of both at the same time. It's both. But you're not saying that you think that Carter Page is incompetent or, or does not understand the potential like charges against him, the fact that if he, I mean, you know, I've seen sort of people like make this argument of like, well, it's it's not really funny, and and I appreciate it, but at the same time, 
I think Carter Page is fully capable of understanding mm -hmm. what's happening, the potential risk. I think he has incredible hubris. I think he's an idiot. But actually, in the United States, like you're allowed to be an idiot. Well, yeah. he has this question then. Is, I mean, has he done something to, whether intentionally or not, witting or otherwise, to muddy the waters to such a degree that he's actually helping the Trump side by confusing what happened and sort of painting a picture which, let's also face it, other accounts from other people paint this picture too, that this was a highly unorganized, undisciplined campaign with a ton of freelancers, nobody really in charge, and frequently the left hand and the right hand not knowing what the other was doing. I mean, <clears throat> that picture seems to be developing here, and Carter Page fit, fits neatly into that. Now, I mean, one question is, is he intending to do that, or is he just through his own incompetence or recklessness just underscoring that point? You know, Occam's razor, and we talked about this a bit when we were talking about George Papadopoulos, that this whole campaign was amateur hour and the carelessness with which the candidate, his family and his staff conducted the campaign is, you know, more and more in evidence. So I would say the simplest explanation is that Carter Page is just part of that broader story. And yes, he is muddying the waters profoundly, certainly the public narrative. But I don't think he's doing it in any sort of masterminded, you know, conspiratorial manner to to create more space for the for Trump to rewrite the narrative. I think he's just foolish enough or arrogant enough um, to reject advice to and self-aggrandizing enough to um, to, you know, tell his story in a way that does, in fact, muddy the waters. But everyone involved in the campaign, even the ones with lawyers, have been telling their stories in ways that are muddying the waters yeah. because this whole campaign is a big mud puddle. It's a big mud puddle. And, yeah. you know, and so at the end of the day, I mean, coming back to a, a broader question we've debated a number of times, is this really collusion in the sense that the Trump campaign sort of intentionally went out there looking to arrange some kind of uh, quid pro quo with the Russians? Or was this just a bunch of, you know, careless foolhardy uh, idiots with no sense of the national interest, no sense of self-restraint, who did whatever they thought was to their best advantage in the moment. It could be both, though, right? I mean, don't you think it's possible that—and I totally agree with you. I mean, it's, it's a huge mud puddle. But isn't it possible that within that mud puddle, like, there was somebody actually organized and sophisticated and acting in some kind of concerted fashion that— Maybe the others didn't know about it. I mean, I feel like within this sort of nebula that was the campaign, there's all sorts of particles it, flying around. And it, it could accommodate, you know, incompetent people like Carter Page who thought they had a great idea or, you know, a Roger Stone-like figure who is sure seems to be saying he was in touch with WikiLeaks. I mean, I think that's right. Like, you know, what's like the expression that like once is twice as a coincidence, three times is a pattern. pattern. Like what is nine times officially? Like how many people do we need here to have like a demonstrable history of context. Remember, you know, for all sort of the the chatter about Manafort and whether or not he was subject to a FISA warrant or anything else, Page was subject to right. a FISA warrant sort of way back, uh, you know, an encounter intelligence investigation way back in 2013. This is not, you know, this wasn't widely known, but it also wasn't secret. And these are still people that are popping up on like the Republican nominee's foreign policy team. It just like, it, it does... 
it does seem as though we're moving towards sort of an Occam's razor type explanation here of actually coming up with the story by which there's not some kind of coordinated campaign is starting to become more difficult than the, oh, no, no, like they're all Russian agents. Like, I mean, look, uh, I'll be clear that I have no knowledge of, of sort of a, a particular FISA against Page. Um, but but there was enough public information that Donald Trump, as the rest of us were, should have been unnoticed about there being a potential issue here. So I, I have to say, uh, picking up off your last point, Susan, like, OK, if you're Trey Gowdy, this is Hipsy. You've been trying to manage this process in a way that will be um, that will fulfill your obligations, but also be helpful or as helpful as you can be to the administration. What do you do with this? Like, where do you where do you take this investigation? And at what point do congressional Republicans who are not mere shills for the White House kind of look at this um, mounting pile of very messy evidence and say, Well, I I do think it was encouraging that Trey Gowdy uh, in this, in the context of this discussion was, he he may not have been his full Benghazi prosecutor self, but he was not a trivial presence and he was not – trying to, at least as I can tell, cover up for uh, uh, or rehabilitate Carter Page as a witness. And so I think there's some reason to think that, you know, Devin Nunes aside, there are a group of Republicans on, even on the HIPSI, who are being reasonably serious mm-hmm. about this. Um but what's what's Trey Gowdy's play? How do you take what came out of this, which is publicly released and being poured over by reporters all over Washington? How do you take this and fit it into your broader narrative, which is, yeah, the Russians are really awful, but there was no collusion? Well, look, I mean, I think it is pretty easy to dismiss a lot of what Carter Page says, whatever you believe Because he sounds like such a loon? Because he's incoherent and because he contradicts himself constantly. And so I think, you know, you you can make the the argument, whatever your orientation toward the thing, that you're going to take him with limited degree of seriousness. And unless somebody else, uh, you know, validates or confirms the specific things that he's saying – you're not going to take him all that seriously. The problem, of course, is that a lot of things that he's saying probably will be or have been confirmed by others' facts and other sources. And at that point, you've got a problem. But that's not a Carter Page problem. Right. That's an aggregation of facts problem. And look, we already see how sort of – look, any any assertion that Page makes is going to need to be corroborated by something else. He, he's not a credible person. He's not a credible witness. But already we've seen Corey Lewandowski coming back and saying, you know, my memory has now been, quote, refreshed. <laughs> I loved that and phrase. And actually, now that you think – now that you mention it, I think Carter Page did tell me about that trip to Moscow after. 
after all. So actually, even though sort of his um, his lack of credibility in like the the court sense is is up, uh, you know, is is an open question. He's him putting that testimony on the record, putting himself at risk and saying, "I'm saying that this happened." One, it has caused Lewandowski to to come on and correct the record. Two, Jeff Sessions is going to be sitting for testimony in front yep. of the Senate next week, and that they are now fun. going to say. Are you accusing this individual of lying or or is your memory now also refreshed? I just want to say my know? memory is also refreshed uh, as a general matter because I, too, was aware last year that the Trump campaign was having inappropriate contacts with Russia. And I wrote that at the time. And it had just slipped my mind over the succeeding months, but now my memory is refreshed. Mm, thank you, Carter Page. Mental breath mint. <laughs> uh-huh. <clears throat> Are you sure this shouldn't be the mental breath mint edition? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe <laughs> Stick it around for the end. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about Saudi Arabia. We're gonna switch. Into, I mean, your magical mental globe, spin it around. A glowing orb, right? Uh, and your let's glowing go orb. From oversharing to total opacity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Back to the land of the opaque, opaque, translucent orb. You can't be opaque and translucent, whatever. Anyway, so the Saudi government, or more precisely, we should say Mohammed bin Salman. The crown prince the of crown Saudi prince, Arabia. The crown prince, which I think some people in the U.S. intelligence community like to refer to as Jerry Kushner's BFF of late, uh, has been... Uh, Detaining, locking up, cracking down on uh, a number of, I guess, what he would see tomorrow as problematic figures. Uh, in, Otherwise uh, known as his cousins. <laughs> his cousins. <laughs> it's a family affair. Um, the Saudi government is calling this an anti-corruption push, uh, but I think there's pretty ample evidence, right, considering also recent events by uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, that he might be getting pesky uh, people out of his way who are threatening his ascension to the throne. Yeah, so the uh, the Game of Thrones references around this set of events have become so overpowering that I, I think we're all getting a bit sick of them. But they are apt because what we've seen is this young man who was 29 or 30 when he was elevated to deputy crown prince, displacing a previous deputy crown prince, then managed to first launch Saudi Arabia into a war in Yemen, then displace the crown prince, Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, who has been under house arrest since. And now, um, over the last week, has carried out what he describes as an anti-corruption campaign, um, but what what has um, had the effect of uh, marginalizing at least 11, perhaps more senior princes in the Saudi royal family, many of whom were outspoken critics of his ouster of Mohammed bin Nayef and concerned about um, his and his father, the king's apparent consolidation of power in their own hands. And look, the context here is that the Saudi royal family is large. It's widespread. Um, the monarchy has passed from brother to brother. And we all know that the current king, King Salman, will be the last of the brothers to rule. Uh, Mohammed bin Nayef was a grandson of the founder of the kingdom. And, uh, and so is Mohammed bin Salman. And so uh, it's, it, it is taking what's been largely a, a 
an absolute monarchy that has rested on a kind of carefully built consensus among the various branches of the royal family. And instead, it's centralizing control around Salman and especially Mohammed bin Salman, since Salman himself is uh, elderly and uh, rumored to have uh, intermittent dementia. Comes and goes. <laughs> Comes and goes. Uh, hey, and our, our, our leader has that too. Maybe. <laughs> so many people say that. <laughs> Some people are saying. <laughs> Some people are saying it. Um, yeah, so... You know, so he's basically taking this kind of elite consensus model monarchy and turning it into a modernized, centralized dictatorship around built around himself. Twenty um, first century dictatorship. Yeah, if you will. it's it's. And what I love about this is how many observers are you know talking about this as a reform drive uh, that in order to uh, privatize um, elements of the Saudi economy and open it up to investment and create more jobs for all the young people in the kingdom. That's why he's arresting all these guys. Um, and, and what's really going on here is a power struggle within the royal family where a number of the economic reforms he wants to impose will have the effect of reducing flows of cash from the government to other parts of the royal family. And they, you know, those parts of the royal family are, are don't like it, and they're pushing back. So um, corruption, as as President Xi in China has found, corruption is a very useful label to throw at your political enemies. Mm-hmm. Can I ask sort of what your suspicions are in terms of the foreknowledge of the Trump administration? So we have sort of this secret trip that Jared Kushner took. You know, he flew commercial. Reportedly, they were up till 4 a.m. chatting. You know, I think... Um, my, As David Ignatius put it, the two princes, <laughs> the two princes were up all night chatting. Uh, at a nice little slumber party strategizing, right? So that's sort of um, uh, suspicious timing. And um, then you have Trump sort of coming out with tweeting, you know, I have great confidence in this. And is that Trump after the fact sort of trying to pretend as though he had control? Do you think the administration was uh, like knew about this and gave the nod? Do you think that the Saudis just don't care? Right. Like they don't they know that you're you're totally burying the lead here, Susan. Jared flew commercial. (laughs) I'm I'm sure it was for Madonna flew commercial. Let's pause a minute over that Mm because. Dude, Jared flew commercial. Yeah, if you really want to do a secret mission, wouldn't you fly they a flew private plane? during the campaign too. Every now and then, Ew. jet blue. <laughs> Jared Kushner, man of the people. But this yeah. is also not the first time. Obviously, Jared's been over, and also before the the sort of the power grab before this one a few months ago. Yes. there was an ally of Mohammed bin Salman. We reported in the journal that flew here. And sort of got Jared's, you know, wink, wink, you know, thumbs up to it, essentially. Yeah, I, I, I think we can only really speculate about the extent to which these internal Saudi moves are being closely coordinated with the White House. What I think we can say is that the White House really doesn't mind. Um, and and you know, is that because they see kind of common cause with this brash, young, risk taking prince um, who, you know, who personality wise and, and leadership style wise 
feels a lot like them. Uh, again, that's speculative. But I think what we can say is that Mohammed bin Salman and, uh, and those around him have been on a major marketing push for the last couple of years to American audiences, to American opinion leaders in particular, to show off this guy as a modernizer, as a, you know, as somebody who's going to bring Saudi Arabia into the 21st century. He's been the subject of adoring columns by the likes of Tom Friedman and Dennis Ross. And so the White House admiration for him is part and parcel of a broader kind of falling in love with another uh, supposedly reformist modernizing dictator. Modernizing dictator who also hates Iran. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like this is the Mohammed bin Salman elevator speech, I'm told. Right. And this is resonating with the current administration. We've talked about this before on the podcast. I mean, what do we think, you know, the slumber parties that, you know, Jared and Mohammed bin Salman are having in Riyadh is both a combination of uh, a we both totes hate Iran. So we're on board with that with each other. And I'm also very curious to what extent you think Mohammed bin Salman might be telling Jared, you can totally make peace in the Middle East and I will totally have your back with negotiations. You can <laughs> right. do this. Well, right. right. I mean, and totally when you leave office, we're going to make so much money. I, I think well. that is not just speculation, actually, because there's very interesting timing here. You had Jared's trip and then immediately after the arrest of these 11 princes, while everything in the kingdom is in turmoil, Abu Mazen, the head of the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, is called urgently to Riyadh. He was there yesterday. And so there's clearly something going on there. And the Saudis, while there may be no direct connection between the domestic consolidation of power and the foreign policy push, they are happening simultaneously. And you have Hariri okay, so, resigning, so, too, so in the what's, of all this. So Peering through the glowing orb of opacity here, <laughs> oh, God. what is is the big trade? <clears throat> we look the other way at your domestic crackdown. You sell out the Palestinians um, and uh, we join hands in an anti-Iranian coalition, is that the we and the Israelis join hands in an anti-Iranian? So that's coalition. the basic. Yeah. Um, I, I think if you wanted to, if you wanted to put all these building blocks together into a building, that's what the building looks like. I don't know if that's real though, because I, I suspect from everything I understand from regional interlocutors who have been part of conversations with Washington on issues like the peace process and Iran. A lot of this is at a lot of these conversations are at such a level of generality. Um, so they may each think something very different oh. about what the overall package looks like and what commitments they're making to one Boy, another. That's never dangerous. And yeah, so that should be a lot of fun. You know, are the Saudis really going to be able to deliver Abu Mazen to the Israelis in a in a new peace process? Um, are the Saudis really going to have Jared Kushner's back when he puts a peace proposal on the table and Abu Mazen rejects it? I thought you had Abu Mazen locked down. No, I thought you were talking. But about I also yeah, think exactly. there's one other really important component of this, which is just spiritual vis-a-vis -vis the Trump people, which is that they love dictators. And it's a family uh, business, Saudi Arabia. No, no. They, I mean, they, you know, he loves General Sisi. He's, you know, got a thing for for 
Duterte, for Duterte, Erdogan, Erdogan. She. he's into Putin, he likes eating chocolate cake with Xi. He's really, it's really only Democratic leaders and Kim Jong-un that he's got a problem with. And, you know, this is a, 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 a sort of night of long knives for, for the Saudi regime, and he's into it. I, I think that's right, but <laughs> there was a jarring kind of disjuncture because at the same time all this stuff is going on and Trump is on his trip in East Asia, he gives a speech uh, about how America and its East Asian allies are committed to resisting tyranny and freedom will prevail. And, you know, it was a prepared speech. I'm sure Stephen Miller, you know, uh, put put these nice words together. And I wouldn't say that Trump read it with a lot of convincing passion. But the message is so jarring in the face of his simultaneously tweeting support for the Saudi night of long knives. But let's focus on the real thing, which is that Tammy and her colleagues will be employed for years Forever, and years man. and years to come, Forever. Uh, untangling this god-awful mess. <laughs> we call her Tammy Bin Salman. <laughs> Tammy Bin Donald, at work forever. Um, all right, let's talk about our third segment. Uh, so The Intercept um, had quite an interesting story this week. Co-byline, you, by the way, by Jim Risen. You mean pro Putin news rag, The Intercept? No, um, now Tucker Carlson darling Glenn Greenwald. <laughs> right. <laughs> Diana Fox News. On. Uh, so according to The Intercept's reporting, uh, Donald Trump, uh, it's not entirely clear how, but possibly by seeing it on Fox News, became taken with an alternate theory of the DNC hack uh, being espoused by a former NSA employee named William Binney or Bill Binney, uh, who will be who is well known to reporters around town as a, uh, I guess we could say a whistleblower slash uh, pretty strident critic of the NSA, where he worked for many years. Um, and this theory goes that the DNC hack was not in fact done by the Russian government; it was done by someone on the inside. It was an inside job, and you can tell this by looking at upload speeds. I think they said something to do with this. It's a theory that has been, let's just say put it charitably, hotly contested by technical experts. And I don't think has much currency, it's fair to say, among experts. And by the way, is completely contradictory to the unanimous consensus report of the entire intelligence community. So putting that aside for a second. Trump, but it only takes one bold whistleblower to that, bring the look, truth to hey, the American people, Shane. Look, I mean, the, we can go back to the WMD assessment on, you know, aluminum tubes. So I'm not entirely saying that, like, Bill Binney is wrong, but there aren't that many people saying Bill Binney is right, with the exception of President Trump saying it seems he may be right, and then directed the CIA director, Mike Pompeo, to have a meeting with Bill Binney about this theory. Okay, so let's... For, we're using the term whistleblower. Let's make one thing clear. Bill Minney last worked in the NSA in 2001. There's a little bit in the way The Intercept sort of presents this story as if like uh, he knows something by virtue of his connection to the NSA and then is blowing the whistle about sort of the honesty or integrity of the intelligence community assessment. He's not a whistleblower for, for sort of any of these the current intents or purposes. He's just a guy with an idea based on the identical information that's 
that's available to everyone else. He's um, like your uncle who <laughs> retired and has a little too much time on his hands. He's like a kook. I mean, I don't think that that's a totally controversial thing to say. Um, in terms of his his recent <coughs> his recent history. Um, as opposed to sort of his uh, his critiques of the agency in general over the past you know seventeen years, uh, look, we have a mountain of evidence about Russian involvement in the DNC hack in in uh, in particular. We have the CrowdStrike report, uh, the actual documents that WikiLeaks released that the, that there are you know sort of mistakes, the original phishing leaks. Then the intelligence community assessment makes crystal clear uses that term high confidence over and over and over again, which is their way of saying positive. They make crystal clear that not only do they have this mountain of forensic evidence for which there really is not any kind of reasonable question, but they also have something else, meaning they have signals intercepts. They were sitting on the computers of the operators that were executing this stuff. Basically, they saw the Russians do it. That's the only way you could attribute not only to the the sort of the technical actors of AP T28 and 29, but that you could actually say, no, 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 there's like Russian high level direction and involvement. They're they're describing something that makes clear that the intelligence community has a huge amount of information here. So just from the outset, we should take this theory and realize like it is a complete nonsense conspiracy theory. It is, and I think Ned Price put his his sort of finger on it correctly in saying it's like a 9-11 truther coming to brief George Tenet. Like, okay, no, no, no. It's like a, it's like the president of the United States pulling a 9-11 truther out of his wherever he's hanging out and sending him to speak to the head right. of the CIA. Directing that. So, so, so which, the is, which is the bigger story. Here, right. right. Like yeah. why? Did, how did Donald Trump find out about this guy? Why did Donald Trump send him to Pompeo? That's and why did I'm... Pompeo agree to meet with him? Well, right. and, and was Pompeo merely... Uh, uh, making his boss happy, you know, his boss wants him to meet with him. Okay, he'll meet with him and then he'll go on and do his job. Or was Pompeo in any sense attracted to the theory, uh, you know, on its own terms? And those are, you know, one is a Trump management question that has some, you know, you do some symbolic damage by way of managing the boss the other is a, is a real substantive problem. Well, if, I wonder if, if you case. can actually distinguish at a certain point. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about the dilemmas of these senior officials who um, are there at, uh, at Trump's command. Um, and Mike Pompeo is somebody who, you know, certainly was seen as in line with Trump's thinking and so on. But once he came to the CIA, you know, We've talked a bit about he's playing a pretty straight role. But then we saw him on the Iran nuclear issue really step in with a heavy foot into the interagency deliberations, speaking to the president and pushing for decertification. And we know that he's stood up this anti-Iran unit within the CIA headed by this notorious um uh, analyst who has, you know, who has been pushing a very hard line in Iran for a long time. And, you know, so the Trump management thing is partly a question of which battles am I going to fight and where can I cozy up to the boss in order to get him to agree with me on the stuff I care more about. And that I have to wonder how this fits into that. So I, I think that's right. But I think you have to think about it sort of even take a step back to understand 
why this is so profoundly disturbing. Um, there are particular relationships the president and the White House is supposed to have with different parts of the executive branch. So we've talked at length about sort of the principle of DOJ independence and and the things that, um, that Comey uh, did and others failed to do to sort of preserve that norm of, no, this is the way information flows. This is the roles that each party are supposed to be playing. But the, the president role... now has learned that he can't interfere. Right. With now, now he really gets it. The role of the CIA it is all uh, it is it is pushing information. The White House is not supposed to be saying, here is a conclusion. Go out and find ways to justify this conclusion. Uh, you know, look, investigate my pet theory on X, Y or Z. Well, isn't that the what Dick CIA- Cheney did? Too with Iraq, I mean, and and there are important reasons why there are intelligence reforms, right? Um, You're sort of referring to a famous intelligence failure, right? There are serious consequences that occur whenever the process is sort of diverse from this idea of no, no, no. You start with a neutral, apolitical examination of the facts. You push the facts up to to leadership. Now. People can selectively look at facts. There's all sorts of an interpretive level. I'm not saying, you know, intelligence is like, you know, the one true gospel and and then, you know, uh, U.S. presidents, you know, make the, the wise decisions based on it. But that's the nature of the way this relationship is supposed to go. So whenever Pompeo agrees to meet with this guy, even if he's just saying, fine, if it makes the president happy, I'll sit down with some nut for an hour. One, he's he's failing to preserve the role of his agency to set the boundary with respect to President Trump in terms of that messaging and management. And two, it's just a slap in, in the face to his workforce that produces this, this uh, you know, assessment, does this work, collects intelligence. And he's saying, yeah, no, like I'm going to meet with somebody who insults you and News. demeans you yeah. and is some like, you know, lives in some corner of the Internet. OK, I want to defend Pompeo a little bit, <laughs> not very much. OK. Um, Pompeo has a very hard boss and when the boss orders you meet with this guy um it is a kind of nuclear thing to say no and it is a manageable thing to go ahead and meet with him do it in secret now of course it leaks um but uh and try to manage the insulate the workforce from the craziness by absorbing the craziness yourself. And I'm not sure that meeting with it, meeting with Binny at the instruction of the president and sort of not filtering it down through the workforce couldn't be an example of insulating your workforce from the craziness. But reportedly, he told Binny to then go meet with the FBI and NSA. Yeah. He didn't and just say, set it on his way. Right? He, he actually is, whether or not he knows the guy's craziness, saying, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll make it Mike Rogers and Dan Coates' problem now. Uh, and Chris Ray, you know, they'll have, all have their turn. He actually, he's not using it to, like, to shut it down. He's perpetuating and legitimizing it. Right. Uh, so I think he can be, but, but notice that he uh, is not in that instance uh, uh, perpetuating it within his own workforce. Right. He's basically making it someone else's problem, someone else's sure. problem. And I'm not I'm not saying that's that's not exactly noble or anything. But I do think that there's a you know, when 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 you're when part of your job as a senior manager and, a, and an agency head is to protect your workforce from the craziness at the top, 
uh, all kinds of nutty things are going to happen when people try to do that. Oh, I agree. I just think that the typical way for a head of an agency to handle that, because it does come up. I mean, it's not it's not unprecedented. But the typical way is for the head of the agency to send that loopy person to their chief of staff or their office manager or whatever, do the meeting, report back to your boss, mm. yeah, we met with him. There's nothing there. Yeah, that, and that's, you know, and then you don't you don't have the symbolic freight of doing it yourself. The other thing Agreed. is we have to understand, you have to look at what Mike Pompeo did in context of sort of what Mike Pompeo has been doing. I'd be willing to sort of accept that interpretation if this was like a total one-off thing, but it's not. There are lots of warning signs here. One sort of him subtly, uh, you know, undermining or, 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 ca- or casting doubt on the intelligence community assessment, right, by saying, well... You know, that assessment found that there was no impact on the election. Well, no, that assessment said that they're, um, they're, they weren't making any kind of determination about whether or not there was an assessment. So CIA had to walk that back. Reports about him sort of changing the Russia investigation reporting chain to report to him directly. Concerns within the agency about the level of politicization uh, of that move related to Iran. Um, you know, I think we're going all the way back to like January or February, Shane, you can correct me, of, uh, you know, whenever sort of Richard Burr was also caught up. Uh, with Devin Nunes uh, and Pompeo on, the story on being yeah. on being directed by Sean Spicer to talk to reporters in order to kill this New York Times story. So, look, if we're talking about like Mike Pompeo picking his battles, is Mike Pompeo ever going to pick a battle, or is Mike Pompeo just sort of Donald Trump's doormat? Well, that's and, what we're seeing. And the closer the investigation gets to evidence of that that is related to Donald Trump specifically or to members of his immediate family, the harder it's going to be for Pomp- – the more pressure there will be on Pompeo to be helpful in these ways. And so if we've already seen him roll over for it, I think we can only expect that to get worse. Okay. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, tomorrow, do you want to go first? I I have a very disheartening object lesson, but it's one that I fear in the rush of news might get overlooked, and so I wanted to bring it to everyone's attention. Um, I, you know, the American Foreign Service Association is the professional association, the guild, the union for foreign service officers, who are a small band of about 7,500. Um, and uh, just yesterday, Ambassador Barbara Stevenson, who's the president of the of AFSA, the American Foreign Services Association, released early uh, uh, her letter that is going in the latest edition of the Foreign Service Journal. And it had some really just horrifying and depressing and distressing statistics about what is happening to our diplomatic corps under just the first nine months of the Trump administration. She said that um, the Foreign Service Officer Corps has lost 60% of its career ambassadors since January. Career ministers, the three-star equivalents in the Foreign Service, are down from 33, only 33 three-stars, okay, to 19. Um, Minister counselors, the equivalent of two-stars, have fallen from 431 right after Labor Day, okay, so that's just a few months ago, to 369 today. In other words, There is a wave of retirements, early departures um, from senior levels of the Foreign Service. And then at the entry level, we're seeing horrific drop off, largely as a result of Tillerson's self-imposed hiring freeze and his um, 
temporary, as it turned out, suspension of the State Department's participation in some important entry-level uh, pathways, the Pickering and Rangel Fellowships. So uh, last year, the Foreign Service took in 366 candidates. This year, they're going to be bringing in only about 100. And and this year, people signing up to take the Foreign Service exam, which is the first step to enter the service, the numbers drop by half. So even if Secretary of State Tillerson resigns tomorrow, even if the Trump administration and its abandonment of diplomacy ended tomorrow, we already have a generational impact on America's diplomatic capacity. And I just think it's really important not to lose track of that in the midst of everything else. And I wonder how many other agencies that's playing out. I mean, those are even being focused on the issue, those are shocking numbers. And I, you got to wonder who else could put up substantially similar numbers kind of across the government. Ben. I have two object lessons. The first is here on my face. It is uh, uh, November 8th, which means that three days ago was Guy Fawkes Day. And I would just like to point out that in a year in which we are talking about an unmasking controversy. You are unmasked. <laughs> I uh, feel obliged that on Guy Fox Day, uh, we should all don a Guy Fox mask and then unmask ourselves. So um, I demand the unmasking of Benjamin Wittes. Yeah, there you go. Um, so uh, that's object lesson number one. Object lesson number two is uh, sitting there in the middle of the table. It is two empty bottles uh, uh, of whiskey, one of a, a nice bourbon and the other of a nice scotch. And I just want to say uh, it reflects the fact that uh, my alcohol consumption has been abnormally high this year, as I think has Shane's and some other people's. And so, you know, we are recording in the afternoon today, and so we are drinking. We finished off these two bottles, and I just want to say whatever it takes to keep people going <laughs> these days. We're doing this for you, people. Yeah, it's We're all, consuming all this alcohol you for you. Don't better than when we started recording? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so two, two bottles of whiskey, empty and but a guy Fox How many mask. bottles do you think you finished and emptied since one year ago when Trump was elected? It was it's been a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a bunch. It's a good thing we only record once a week. Well, cheers to Oh, the whiskey's here every, every day. Every day. Yeah. Every day. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare, and you can find our show archive still, I think, at Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Yeah, that, that, that website's going to go away pretty soon. It's going to move over still. eventually, but for now, you know, Google it, find it. You'll eventually find it. Yeah. This yeah. Is, Rational Security is a pretty Love it, visit mm -hmm. it, find rate it. it. Uh, tell you can your follow friends. us on Twitter at RATL Security. We are not on Instagram. I feel like we should be on Instagram with the object lessons, maybe. I'm worried Trey Gowdy might ask us about it if we were. Snapchat. <laughs> we're not on Snapchat. <laughs> we do text you know, You know Gowdy's stuff. Like, gave him a list before, and he's like, what's that other one that the kids Snape use chat. with the little ghost? You know. he, he left out Kick Messenger. <laughs> <laughs> you can also find us on Facebook. And whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a nice rating and review. It really helps people find the podcast. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Music performed this week by Carter Page and the Refreshments. <laughs> Ooh, 
nice. Yeah. It's like mints with a Z. Is Corey Lewandowski in that band? He's doing backup. <laughs> He's like, oh, right. I remember we did have a gig today. <laughs> <laughs> I do know how to play rhythm guitar. <laughs> Thanks, Carter Page. Oh, any backup band would not be completed without Sophia Yan, who really isn't a backup artist. She's more of a solo artist. She's a star. She's a star. On behalf of my other stars, my friends here, Mark Hoffman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Be refreshed. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.